I'm Shelley Schlender for How on Earth. Here's an extended version of an interview about how Native Americans came to be. It's about a CU Boulder study that appeared in Science Magazine in February 2014 and promptly made headlines around the world. The study involves top-notch detective work that shows how, almost 30,000 years ago, a major ice age trapped Asian explorers on a land bridge between Asia and Alaska for 10,000 years. Glaciers had buried North America, but Beringia was just warm enough the trapped explorers survived and thrived. They stayed in that pit stop for so many thousands of years, it gave time for the inevitable mutations that can happen in DNA. Today we call that distinct Beringian DNA proof that someone's ancestors were Native Americans. Now here's CU scientist John Hoffiger. John Hoffiger, how long ago was the big ice age? Between about 28,000 and 17,000 years ago, there was a period that we refer to as the last glacial maximum, and that was the coldest phase of the last glaciation. The last glaciation actually begins about 70,000 years ago, but it underwent a series of cold and not-so-cold phases. It peaks in terms of cold temperatures during this period called the last glacial maximum. 27,000 years between, ago. Between about 28,000 to 17,000 years ago, calendar years. It was very cold. Yes. Temperatures are depressed throughout the northern hemisphere by at least a few degrees centigrade. Which meant that there were ice caps that were humongous. I, when I picture an ice cap at the North Pole during this glacial maximum, I'm picturing an ice cap that's like a cap. It goes from the North Pole on down toward Mexico, ice everywhere. It's like a cap. It covers everything. But you don't think that that's what happened. Well, there is growth of massive glaciers in two places in the northern hemisphere. One of them is northwestern Europe, Scandinavia. An enormous ice sheet grows out of Scandinavia, and that covers much of the northwestern part of Europe. And another a massive glacier developed uh, in Greenland and northern Canada that expanded across most of Canada and even down into the northern parts of the United States, the lower 48. During the maximum, the last glaciation, that massive ice sheet coalesced with a large ice sheet coming out of the northern Rocky Mountains. And that completely blocked access from places like Alaska to the rest of the Americas. It blocked access, and I've always pictured that it blocked it totally, meaning like a cap, it just fit on the top of the world and was everywhere. But you're saying that 27,000 years ago, there was an area around Alaska, that far north, that was actually not too bad to live in, an area that you can't even be at today because right now it's underwater. That's right. The area between Asia and Alaska, it was dry land. And the reason for that is related to the ice sheets themselves because so much water was locked up on land in the form of these massive ice sheets that sea level is lowered by several hundred feet. Several hundred feet. That's right. And that exposed a wide plain between Northeast Asia and Alaska that we usually refer to as the Bering Land Bridge. The Bering Land Bridge, but you refer to it as a whole nation called Beringia. Well, the term Beringia was defined in 1937 by a Swedish botanist named Eric Holtian. He's the person who came up with that term. What he had in mind when he used that term was what we think of as the land bridge. It's the area that is now underwater. This exposed lowland plain between Alaska and Chukotka 
that was exposed during the last glacial maximum. And, and that's between Alaska and some place in northern Siberia, basically. In, in Northeast Asia, that's right. Northeast Asia. The reason he wanted to come up with a term for this place, which no longer exists, at least above water, he was trying to explain the distribution of modern tundra plants around the Bering Strait region. The same kinds of tundra plants show up on both sides of the Bering Strait. How many miles apart is the Russian side or the Asian side of the Bering Strait and the Alaskan side of the Bering Strait. How long is that? It's very short, 30 miles, something like that. And there's a couple of islands, the Diomede Islands, that are right in the center. And you can see those islands from Cape Prince of Wales, which is out at the westernmost tip of Alaska. So Sarah Palin was right that you can see from Alaska <laughs> to Asia? I suppose that's true. If you're standing in the westernmost tip of Alaska in the Bering Strait, you can see the Diomede Islands on a clear day. And this is called the Bering Strait right yes. here. It's kind of a 30-mile section of open water today. But yeah, it's about 30 miles. <laughs> I was just measuring it here on the map. And right now, how deep is that water? It's less than 150 feet deep. Whenever sea level fell below 50 meters from its present position, or about 150 feet below where it is now, that land connection was exposed at the strait. And the further the sea level fell, the wider that plain became. At the time of the last glacial maximum, at about 20, 25,000 years ago, that plain was enormous. It was well over 600 miles wide from north to south. All right, then the Bering Strait, 27,000 years ago, was 30 miles long and 600 miles wide, and it wasn't a strait with water. It was an open plain, a tundra. It was a lowland plain, that's right. Haltain's definition of Beringia. He was trying to explain the distribution of modern tundra plants. His solution to it was that the central part of Beringia, what we call the Bering Lambridge, what he was calling Beringia, was a refugium for tundra plants, which are characteristic of shrub tundra, of a moister environment, somewhat milder environment than the kind of polar desert that prevailed over much of the northern hemisphere, particularly high latitudes during the last glacial maximum. He was guessing that there were more plants living in that area than in most of this northern latitude because it was warmer there? There wasn't as much ice? Haltain's idea was that Beringia, the land bridge, had become a refugium for these tundra plants during very cold periods. And then when conditions got warmer, the tundra plants spread back out into what are now the land areas of Alaska and Northeast Asia as that part of the world became a milder shrub tundra kind of environment after the last glacial maximum. The model that we're addressing in this paper in science is a people analog to that. We're suggesting that people, in effect, did the same thing the plants did. The people who had occupied Beringia before the last glacial maximum, and we now know there were people there before the last glacial maximum, retreated to this refugium in the center of Beringia, and then after the last glacial maximum, just like the tundra plants, they spread out of it in both directions. Well, what an assertion, because there's this place that's far north where we think of as a place for Eskimos and igloos, not a place that people would necessarily hang out unless they are Inuit people. And you're saying that this was a refuge from all of the cold. Why was it so much warmer there? Central Beringia, the land bridge, was the only place at high latitudes during the last glacial maximum, let's say above latitude 60 degrees north, that was exposed to fairly moist and mild air 
from a major ocean basin, that's the Pacific. There is relatively warm, moist air that circulates in a clockwise direction in the North Pacific. Today, it comes into the Aleutians, and it creates what's been described as the world's worst weather, right, because it's perpetually stormy, fog-bound, so forth, but it never gets extremely cold there. It's always kind of damp and relatively mild, despite the latitude. It appears as though we had essentially the same phenomenon during the last glacial maximum. That's why it's believed that there was the shrub tundra refugium in the center of Beringia at that time. So the Bering Strait, this 30-mile-long area, was exposed so that it was 600 miles wide in between Alaska and Russia. And you're saying that the way that the currents of the oceans worked, it was kind of like the Riviera of Alaska. It was a place that was warmer than other areas, even though on either side of it, the land masses were covered with snow and ice and glaciers. The irony here is we're emphasizing the fact that you have this moist air coming into central Beringia. But in relative terms, it was still comparatively dry. But was it cold? It wasn't as cold as other areas at comparable latitudes. And the thing is, at the same time, the glaciers that had developed in the mountains of Alaska, the Brooks Range, the Alaska Range, and also mountains on the other side of the Bering Strait, like the Bergans Mountains, those glaciers were starved of moisture, and they never became massive ice sheets the way glaciers over Canada and Northwest Europe did. It was too dry for massive glaciation, but it was wet enough in the center of Beringia for these tundra plants to survive. We have other sources of evidence regarding the temperature. My colleague Scott Elias, who's a co-author on this uh, piece in science, he's a paleoentomologist. He works with insect fossils, and he's able to reconstruct past temperatures. He looked at beetles. That is right. And he found his surprise a few years ago that... The beetles that were living in western Alaska around the edges of the land bridge, as well as beetles he was getting out of cores extracted from the Bering Sea, that is the original surface of the land bridge now underwater, uh, were all pointing towards comparatively mild temperatures, surprisingly mild temperatures given the fact that it was last glacial maximum. Let's have people picture this. So you send out a ship and you go into the middle of the Bering Strait, 30 miles across, 150 feet deep, and then you put a big pipe down there and you let it land in the sediment, and then you scoop up some of the mud, you bring it back to your labs and you look at what's in it. That's exactly right. Those cores all came here to see you. They were analyzed here at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research, and we had a number of people working on them. Scott was working on the insects. We also had Sue Short, the palynologist, was analyzing the pollen out of those cores. You found out that it wasn't just shrubs like Alaskan tundra. You found trees there, willows, birch, You made it sound like Wisconsin. (laughs) Well, it's independent evidence, especially from the studies of pollen cores all over Alaska as well as Northeast Asia, which suggests that there were at least a few tree species that survived the entire last glacial maximum in the central part of Beringia. Much of that is based on inferences from the quantities of pollen that are being recovered too far away from pollen sources down at temperate latitudes. There's too much pollen in these cores for it to be anything other than a local source. That's why the conclusion is that there were local sources of arboreal pollen and and that these trees were nearby. Trees were nearby. There was grassland. There were fish in the sea. What a paradise to live in 27,000 years ago when most of the northern hemisphere was under ice. Yes, it's still kind of a, you know, somewhat fantastic concept to, you know, get your arms around. You have to realize that the archaeological evidence for people living around the land bridge, near the land bridge, whatever, during the last glacial maximum is nil. We have nothing. 
we do have evidence for people living to the west of the land bridge. In Asia. In our sort of expanded definition of Beringia, which most people now define much more broadly than Hultain did when he originally um, uh, developed the concept. So we know people were there before the last glacial maximum. And of course, we have lots of sites that show up after the last glacial maximum. We have indirect evidence for watercraft you know, in, in Southeast Asia. The only way the modern humans could have gotten to Australia from the Asian mainland is by watercraft, even during the lowest sea level phases. How long ago? We're probably talking 50,000 years ago there. 50,000 years ago, people were using boats. Yes, we're reasonably sure of that. We don't know if people were using boats at higher latitudes, of course. But it wouldn't be necessary in Beringia. I mean, people could simply walk from one side to the other. But somehow you think they got stuck there for thousands of years. Well, the, the model that we're addressing in this paper in science was proposed in 2007 by a group of geneticists working at the University of Tartu in Estonia. It was based entirely on the analysis of modern human genetics. They were not even working with any ancient DNA. The essence of the genetics argument is actually quite simple. It's based primarily on the analysis of mitochondrial DNA. That means the DNA inside of our cells that's in the little batteries called the mitochondria that tends to, well, it's basically the mother's DNA. It always traces through the mother's side of the child. So it's the mother's DNA all the way back to Eve. Yes, that's right, and even beyond that. It allows us to track the maternal lineages. That was the primary database that the um, folks in Tartu uh, used for their analysis. And what they found was that there are a number of mutations that took place in the founding population of most Native Americans, that is, all Native Americans except for very recent arrivals in the Arctic, like the Inuit. There are a series of mutations that take place in the mitochondrial DNA after the split from its Asian source population. These are mutations that are found in Native Americans. They are not found in the original parent populations anymore. But... These mutations are found throughout North and South America. The millions of people, the billions of people in North and South America, they have the same mitochondrial DNA mutations that show that they have Native American First Nations people DNA. That's right. So the dilemma is this. These mutations had accumulated after the divergence from the Asian source population, but before that population began to disperse throughout North and South America. One thing you're saying, John Hoffaker, is that in Asia, where these folks came from, they don't have those mutations. So there's a clear way to say whether somebody was Native American or not, but how did those mutations get concentrated enough to become something that's part of so many people today in North America? Well, that's the dilemma is this. In order to account for the widespread occurrence of these mutations throughout North and South America, you have to have a period of time during which the founding population is isolated from its Asian source, but before it starts to disperse throughout North and South America. And there are enough of these mutations. This is what the group from Tartu found. And we're talking about at least a few thousand years. Even if you use the fastest mutation rates estimates that you can come up with, you're talking about at least a few thousand years, that this population has to be concentrated in one place, not dispersing, but completely cut off genetically from its Asian parent group. And so their suggestion was that this population must have been isolated between Asia and North America during the last glacial maximum before the dispersal began, because we know the dispersal began after 15,000 years ago. Do you picture then ice on the left, 
ice on the right. And this one place in the middle, which was still habitable because it didn't have traps of huge amounts of ice. So these people who were in this temperate zone, the Riviera of Alaska, 27,000 years ago, they were stuck there. They certainly could not advance into the New World at that point because of the coalescence of those massive ice sheets that I mentioned earlier. I don't think that ice was a serious constraint to their movement back into Asia. If they wanted to move back into Asia, they could have done it. Well, then why Uh, didn't they do that? What we think is going on here is that when conditions get extremely cold after about 28,000 years ago, it looks as though the higher latitudes, let's say above 60 degrees north, are abandoned throughout the northern hemisphere, at least the unglaciated part of it. Okay, so we're looking at Alaska, um, northern Asia, and you're thinking it got so cold in those land masses that people said, we give up, we're going to just totally leave this area. And the people on the little Bering Strait, Beringia, they didn't have people to go visit anymore in Asia, and there was nobody yet in North America. There's one place then at high latitudes that would seem to be livable during this period, and that looks like the land bridge because of these somewhat milder temperatures. And also there's another factor we think may have been really important, may have been critical. There was a wood supply there, both in the form of woody shrubs and the trees we talked about. Well, that would certainly make their gardens look a lot better. Yes, it certainly would. Excellent for landscaping, but also maybe critical for fuel because there's been a lot of experimental research of different fuel types, bone versus wood versus lignite and things like that. Well, but just a second, you're saying that early man burned bones? Yes. We know that people who live in environments during the last glacial period, let's say in places like Eastern Europe, where wood was scarce, made a very heavy use of bone. That surprises me because we know that the Inuit, who many people call the Eskimo, what they use for heating their igloos is whale oil and seal oil. You don't think that these people 27,000 years ago were doing that? No, because they didn't have access to sea mammal oil. Meaning that they didn't have a way to hunt seals and whales. That's right. We have no evidence for major marine mammal exploitation until well after the Ice Age. But then if they had bones, and they weren't the bones of seals and whales, what kind of bones are we talking about that they burned? They were burning large mammal bones, presumably bison, horse, even mammoth. You know, we find large quantities of bone ash and bone charcoal in sites, let's say, that were occupied in Russia and Ukraine 20,000 years ago. So you have to speculate because Beringia now is underwater, so you can't examine any campsites that were there for bone ash. You just know that in the land, people were doing that. So probably they did that in Beringia, too. The experimental research that I mentioned found that bone burns very hot and fast, and If you're going to sustain a fire, you need to supplement it with some wood. They were doing experiments in which they were burning bone in several hearths for six hours, and they went through 40 kilos of bone. 40 kilos of bone is, let me see, 40 times roughly 300 pounds of bone, roughly. That's several large mammal carcasses. Their conclusion was that it's not realistic to use bone as a fuel if you don't have a wood supplement to extend the life of the fire. Well, there you go, because if it's burning the bone so fast during the night, you're not going to get a good night's sleep because you're always having to get up and add more bones to the fire. That is a very good point. The thing is, what we find in these sites that do show heavy use of bone in places like Ukraine and also even in, in Alaska, after the last glacial maximum, where people are still using a lot of bone, we always find a little wood in there. It's willow, usually in Alaska. Over on the other side of the Bering Strait, it's usually larch, which was more common there. And in Ukraine, it's willow, birch, things like that. 
We think woody shrubs probably were very important. There was presumably a fair amount of willow out there. That's always been very important as a fuel supplement for people living in, at high latitudes. You know, this sounds a little bit like a great movie, except it took 3,000 or so years. That's a little long for a movie, but you are imagining a ragtag team of adventurers who somehow ended up in the Bering Strait in this Beringia that was 30 miles long and 600 miles wide, and they kind of were stuck there all alone. They fell in love. They had their kids there. They raised their families. They lived and died for generations creating a unique DNA that became the DNA of Native Americans. And there was plenty of love involved because the geneticists are telling us that it was not a small bottleneck population. Rather, it was a fairly stable and possibly even growing population. And we know that by the time the dispersal began out of Beringia, after the last glacial maximum, uh, after people began to filter into North and eventually South America, we have at least 16 maternal lineages there. So we're talking about at least a few thousand people here. It's hard to explain where you put all these people for this long period of time at high latitudes during the last glacial maximum if they're not in central Beringia. I don't know where else you would put them. And when you say 16 maternal lineages for about 1,000 people at least, these people were together long enough that most people had some of the genetic mutations of 14 different mothers from several thousand years before, which means that this one group, they were raising kids that had ancestors that went back to roughly the same 14 women from 5,000 years before. Yeah, that's right. You know, then we get this dispersal and we get very rapid population growth after the dispersal. This could be done if you took a small town in Kansas, say Ellsworth, which is, well, it's a little bit bigger than 1,000 people, but if you made all those people stay there for 5,000 years, you would get something distinct like this. (laughs) Yes, that's right. If you isolate them genetically, inevitably you would get over time, a set of genetic markers, a set of mutations that were unique to that group of people. That's what we have here. It's a fascinating puzzle. Is that the reason that you look at this is because it's kind of neat to puzzle out what happened? The thing is that when this idea was proposed in 2007, there was an earlier suggestion along similar lines, but it was somewhat different. The model that we were addressing in our paper is the 2007 model. When it was proposed, it was largely ignored outside genetics. This includes myself because it just seemed too fantastic. We had no archaeological evidence for people living in and around the Bering Land Bridge uh, at this time. It just seemed too fantastic. So it really wasn't given a serious look by most of my colleagues, at least in archaeology. The other thing that was missing was the paleoecology because there was a lack of communication between the geneticists on the one hand and the paleoecologists on the other hand. And the paleoecologists were largely unaware of what the geneticists were talking about and the geneticists weren't aware of the paleoecological information. So what we did in this paper, co-authored by an archaeologist, a geneticist, and a paleoecologist, was to bring them all together. And all of the puzzles matched up. We think that the paleoecology fits with the genetics very nicely. I would rephrase the question. Since it appears to be essentially a given at this point, that we have the founding population of most Native Americans isolated from its Asian source, for some period of time before it disperses. And it looks like that time has to be the last glacial maximum because it has to be before the dispersal, so it has to be before 15,000 years. It has to be at least a few thousand years before then. That puts you in the last glacial maximum. So the question is, as I said earlier, you know, where are you going to put them? If you're not going to put them in this shrub tundra refugium in central Beringia where they had a wood supply and where conditions were somewhat milder, where else are you going to put them? 
The alternative is essentially a polar desert in northern Siberia or in Arctic Europe or somewhere further south where they would be running into other populations because that's where everybody else was at that point. And they're going into a new world after the glacial maximum ends. It was, what, 13,000 years ago that a woman died on an island outside of Santa Barbara. Researchers in recent years discovered, I think, her tibia there, which is, I think, the first human remains documented in North America. And further down in South America, there are some human remains from even longer ago. So we know that by 13,000 years ago, there were seafarers traveling along the coasts of the United States, what we call the United States now. Yeah, the remains that you talked about are particularly interesting because they indicate watercraft. Most of my colleagues at this point suspect that the coastal route from Beringia, from Alaska, down to mid-latitude North America probably was the first route that people took rather than the interior route. We can't, we haven't confirmed this yet or nailed it down, but most of my colleagues feel that's the case. And I think those remains out in Catalina, the indications that people were boating around there in Southern California are consistent with that. I'm Shelley Schlender. You're listening to this extended version of How on Earth Radio about Beringia, where Native Americans came to be. Up next, we're gonna shift gears and look at Beringia from a more modern perspective. Just how did Beringians live compared to people today? And just what did they eat? I got to ask these questions of CU Boulder scientist, John Hoffaker. So John Hoffaker, your study about the Bering Land Bridge, longtime refuge for early Americans 27,000 years ago. There's a technical term for this? We refer to it as a shrub tundra refugium. A refugium. A a refugium for both plants and we think people as well. The climate was kinder than the climate was on either side in the land masses during this incredible ice age so that instead of being covered by ice, this was an area that had plants and shrubs and even trees. Yes. Well, I looked up refugia on Google. Made me curious, how did these people live in a refugia? Were they living in igloos? Were they living in huts? What do you think? I assume they were building the same kinds of shelters that we see in the earlier Upper Paleolithic, probably using some of those willows for tent poles. We have traces of houses that are older than this in northern Eurasia and places like Ukraine and Russia. And when you say a house, do you mean willow poles bent over with hides over it? I I would assume shelters with poles and and, and hides. But not igloos. You were thinking about more forest-like dwellings. We don't have any evidence, you know, one way or the other. I'm assuming at this point that it would look similar to traces of a shelter at a site that I was working at a couple of years ago in Ukraine called Mira, which is about 30,000 years old. And in Mira, we had a circular pattern of post malls, closed an area of about 15 square meters, and we assume that was covered with hides. And that's the kind of thing I would guess that we're dealing with here. All right. Well, that's different than what I found online when I looked for refugias. This is one of the refugias in the Italian Alps. It's called a refugia. Looks like a chalet with some umbrellas and picnic tables. Uh, <laughs> that's not what they had 27,000 years ago. I mean, we can't prove otherwise, but uh, I assume not. I was curious what the people in your refugia in Beringia ate 27,000 years ago. So I was looking at what people eat at the Italian refugias. This is the first image I came across. Uh, okay. We do. We have 
you're looking at a picture of what? I'm looking at a picture of a, it looks like a, a, a couple pints of beer. Uh, we have some relatively early evidence of beer production. It doesn't quite go back to the last glacial maximum, but it's getting earlier, so, you know, you never know. Where exactly were people making beer? Uh, I've, I recall seeing something in the literature not too long ago about some evidence for beer production in the, in the Middle East. In the Middle East where they didn't have glaciers, where they were starting to grow grains way earlier than people in northern Europe? True, yes. Here's some other things I found at the refugia in Italy, the modern refugia. Is that a cappuccino? Looks a bit like it, yes. A little bit of tart there with cheese. Some whipped cream, I think. I think that's some kind of jam. Oh, okay. So uh, flour, berries, dairy, either coffee or chocolate milk. Uh, Yeah, looks like it. You raise a good question, which is, you know, what were they eating, what were they living on? And I think actually this touches on a really important question, a really important issue that relates to this refugium. Because the large mammal communities in a shrub tundra environment would not be that great. Large mammalian biomass would be much lower, let's say, relative to more steppic kinds of environments where we have herds of big grazers like steppe bison, horse, and so forth. Before we go into that, let's give some context about what people today think is a healthy way to eat. I brought some things from, from my refrigerator. Some blue moose basil pesto. Any chance for that? It has cheese, basil, nuts. Could they get any of those ingredients back there 27,000 years ago? Uh, well, let's see. I don't know. How about the tomatoes here? Uh, I, I, I'm skeptical about tomatoes. A little too cold there in the refugio near the icebergs. How about maple syrup? Not many maple trees up there. You know, the United States, we're big sugar eaters. So how about this Harry and David jam? Marion berries, could they have had berries there? Yes, you would have berries there. Well, then would they have had this kind of jam? Uh, I don't know. Well, this jam is the first ingredient is actually sugar. The berries would have been there. But probably not with the added sugars. Probably not. Okay, so they could have had dried berries maybe. Probably not a lot of honey. That's a little honey bear. Let's see what else is here. Chocolate. Well, this was in the Italian refugias. can't remember what I brought. Oh, I know. Here's something. This is something that the USDA says is an important staple for all people because it's always been part of our diets. What's this? A grain? Uh, rice grain, yes. No, I, would, I wouldn't expect much grain harvesting here. So among these people, this was not something that they ate for thousands of years. They didn't have wheat or rice or corn. Not a... Not in the subarctic shrub tundra. Okay, let's keep looking. Oh, here's some more. Peaches, apricots, would they have had apricot trees? No. Okay, so they would have had berries, but they probably wouldn't have had apricots. How about some pecans? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's okay. It's too cold to have big pecan trees. Oh, how about some Armenian yogurt dip? <laughs> uh, yogurt would certainly be possible. 27,000 years ago were animals domesticated enough that they could milk them, or would they have been able to milk wild bison? Well, we assume that, you know, they weren't doing that. But at least, I mean, the ingredients were there. If you could milk yeah, a if wild you, animal. If you could have obtained the ingredients, they, they were there. Okay, Snapple Greeno. I think this counts as a soda. Uh, this is a very popular drink in the world today. Well, I suspect it was not very popular in Beringia 27,000 years ago. Not available. Probably not available. Here's some apples. USDA says that it's important for everybody to eat fruit because it's a basic natural part of every person's diet, and you're sick without something like this. Would they have had apples, maybe? No, I don't think so. Could they have had crab apples that aren't sweet? Uh, I don't think so. 
ah, here's something that is the staff of life. Here's some bread products. In this case, it's English muffins. No, I don't think so either. The USDA says that this should be a part of every human's diet because greens are good for us. But did the Beringians have them? I doubt it. I got some chocolate candy here, not Beringian. I don't think so. Okay, so 27,000 years ago in the Bering Straits, not that. Oh, let's see what else I have here. Cheese, dairy. The ingredients would have been there, but probably not accessible. And accessible because nobody likes to milk a wild bison. Wouldn't advise anyone to do that. Okay, so that pretty much empties out my sack of modern food, and I'll take it off your desk later. But I want to go to some speculations about maybe what they might have had there. This is parsley. Would they have had greens that they could have eaten that are edible? Uh, some greens, yes, sure. If they wanted to. If, if they wanted to, yeah. Um, I also have radishes, so root vegetables they might have found, maybe? Uh, you know, I'm not sure about that. Whether they had uh, sweet potatoes or something else that could withstand the cold and grow. Hey, I've got, got something else, anchovy paste. My guess is, is that there was some freshwater fishing going on here. Not anchovies, maybe, but some other fish. We're finding some remains of fish in sites in the immediate post-last glacial maximum period in Beringia. So some signs that they ate some fish. So this is just some lard. Would they have had fat of some kind, do you think? Sure, sure, absolutely. Would it have been the polyunsaturated kinds of fat that the American Heart Association says are very good for us, like canola oil and American Heart Association says corn oil too, or would it have been lard from mammoths? I suspect it wouldn't, wouldn't meet the USDA standards. And yet the people were eating this for 5,000 years and thriving. Well, they were getting lots of exercise. Okay, they were getting lots of exercise. That's a good point. Let's look in this one to see if any of these are foods that might have been more likely. This was a wild guess. Would they have eaten kelp? Is there any sign of seaweed? No. We were saying the coastal adaptations seems to begin um, very soon after the last glacial maximum. But um, as far as we know, it wasn't going on during the last glacial maximum. How about some eggs? Could they have eaten eggs? Bird eggs, certainly. Yes. Not these I mean, pasture-raised chicken yeah, not, eggs? Not chicken eggs, but certainly bird eggs, I would guess, would have been, it might have been actually fairly important. Yes, yeah, so maybe in the spring when all the birds were breeding, maybe not any other time of the year, but in the spring, they may have been eating a lot of eggs because maybe birds like to nest in this place. Yeah, what happens in late spring, early summer in these environments is that we get a lot of water birds that come north. They, in fact, have been a very important part of the food supply for a number of northern peoples like the yucca gear over in, in Northeast Asia. I found this at the store, chopped wild elk. Yeah, elk is a good candidate. We know elk was around there, uh, or wapiti is the, the taxon that was present there. In fact, there's a recent study that was just published a couple of weeks ago on elk in Beringia. pointed out that they don't seem to be showing up in the drier steppic areas to the east, and they seem to be more concentrated in the west. Meaning more concentrated in? Northeast Asia. They seem to actually follow humans into North America. Um, it's kind of interesting. They're almost sort of a surrogate for humans uh, in the fossil record. The thing about elk is that it's unusual because it's both a browser and a grazer. And so it relies on some grasses, but it also browses around. And it's, it's um, in many ways, I, I, you know, I see an analog with people, right? Because if people were probably exploiting both this shrub tundra zone in the center, if they were there indeed, as well as these drier areas outside the tundra zone. And that's what I was leading up to a moment ago. 
possibly one of the keys to the survival of all these people in the center of Beringia may have been the fact that they had access to these adjoining areas where they were not living year-round, right, because there's no wood out there. But nevertheless, during warmer months, they can foray into these areas, and it's like a vast hunting preserve, and it's much more steppic, so we still have all these big grazers living over there like steppe bison and mammoth, and they have no competition. There's nobody else living there. So everybody so else had fled because it was so cold. Out, so they have the whole place to themselves. And it, what it does is it essentially extends their range far beyond the area that they're calling home. All right, so you're picturing that in this 30-mile swatch of land that was 600 miles wide, the Bering Strait above water during the glacial time, they had the right resources to make fires. They had wood, but animals didn't need trees. They could graze on tundra, and even though there were ice caps around the edges of the oceans, there may have been places where really big animals, woolly mammoths, other big animals were there that they could go and hunt before they went back home to their Beringia. Exactly. Yeah. And this gives them this vast additional base of resources that they can tap into, presumably without any competition from other humans. And that may have been critical to, to sustaining all this large number of people in this place for this long period of time. I've got two more things to guess as to whether or not modern people can get them today that they could have eaten. Um, this is actually fro- frozen fish heads. I didn't have, you know, this was for making soup, but they could have caught small fish couldn't they? You know, there is evidence of exploitation of freshwater aquatic resources going, that goes back a long ways. Um, And uh, as I say, we have evidence for um, harvesting fish right after the last glacial maximum, like salmon uh, over in Kamchatka. So I would assume, yes, that, um, you know, fish were were an important part of the diet. The point I was actually leading up to here was that they would have had the best of both worlds because the shrub tundra zone itself um, probably was attracting more, you know, water birds. You mentioned, you know, more more ponds and lakes around there. So you've got the water birds to go after. You've got some fish to go after. Uh, there's also small mammals. Uh, but then you have access to these areas outside the shrub tundra zone where all these grazers are living in these more open steppic areas. Well, John Hoffinger, you're not describing a vegan diet for people 27,000 years ago. No, I am not. And these people were healthy? They continued to reproduce, and after the last glacial maximum, they underwent a major expansion, population expansion, so... Doing fine. They seem to have been doing fine, yes. And how many thousands of years do you think people might have eaten this way? I mean, this is called an unusual diet today. How many thousands of years were people eating this way? I think that a diet that was, you know, heavy in protein and fat was pretty typical all across the northern hemisphere during the last glacial period. And when you say protein and fat, you didn't say a lean protein diet. I'm going to show you one more food and see what you think of this. This is a dog bone. It's a soup bone for beef. If I take this out of here, what do I see in the center? You see marrow, which undoubtedly was very important. What is marrow? It's, it's just this white creamy stuff. It looks a little bit like cream cheese. What is it really? It's very rich in various nutrients. It's something that people were clearly using heavily because the bones, you know, we see bones that are just completely smashed up, typically in these sites all across northern Eurasia and uh, in, in later times after the last glacial maximum as well in Alaska. People went after the marrow. What is it mainly? Fat? Uh, yeah, largely, yes. It's largely fat. Right. And it was something that people went after as much as they could. Yes. American Heart Association says we shouldn't do that. (laughs) 
it clearly was an important part of the diet. Well, okay. Thanks. I was just curious what you think these people eat. I, I'm curious to ask you what you eat. Uh, I eat more, more greens, I can assure you, and more fruit than folks in Beringia did. But how about some of these other things that, that we think of as, mo- as modern healthy foods? Are they things that humans have eaten for a very long time? There's been a major shift in diet here with, uh, you know, agriculture and even worse with, you know, industrialized food production, processed foods, obviously, that were still adapting to it and, you know, not very well in some cases. But the Beringians, for thousands of years, they thrived on things like bone marrow, fish, bison. They thrived on foods like that. Yes. I mean, I think that uh, the diet that these people were subsisting on Probably not unlike the diet of most northern peoples in recent times. If you subtract out the last 300 years. Yeah, if, you're, if we're talking about the Inuit or, or the Yukagir I mentioned earlier, these were all diets that were you know, heavy in protein and fat. Fish, birds, lots of mammals, either sea mammals or land mammals, depending on where you are. So that's been the norm until recently, for the northern hemisphere anyway. I'm Shelley Schlender. You've been listening to CU Boulder scientist John Hoffaker talking about how Native Americans came to be 25,000 years ago in a land that's now underwater, a land that's called Beringia. Find out more at our website, howonearthradio.org.